monthly literary podcast, the only book club podcast that's constructed all of its podcasting equipment out of seaweed and seaweed leather. We got, I mean, it's basically infinite supply here, Amanda. It, it is. Also, seaweed, one of my favorite things to eat, as well as my daughter's. Have you turned it into leather? I haven't tried, Jerky? but uh, I mean, I'm tempted, right? <laughs> I, apparently it's possible. I mean, I, I guess if you dry out anything and stack it on top of itself or something, I'm not quite sure how the the science of that would work. It seems like it's made of entirely different stuff, atoms, part of the elements, know, right? materials. But what do I know? I've never attempted it before. It seems fairly brittle to me, but I, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can strap anything together with seaweed in a pinch, in a pinch. Right, right, yeah. Maybe the and key... I feel like if it got wet again, then it would just turn back into being really silky, right? Yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah, you can't can't get it wet again, I guess. It's a once one-time <laughs> use kind of a thing. I guess also it wouldn't turn super brittle because you're not cooking it at those insanely high temps. That, mm. I, that, I think, is m- what must create the kind of cracky, chip-type, brittle texture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think our equipment holds up pretty well. And if you folks have no <laughs> idea why we're pondering what seaweed weather even is, if it even is a real thing <laughs> that exists in the world, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode. These are our analytical deep-dive episodes into the book that we've decided to read for a couple of weeks. Today's book club will be on the novel Piranesi. Are you going with Essie or Easy? Do we? Piranesi, I think. Yeah, I, let's go easy. for some reason it's like Italian in my head. I don't know. Okay. Well, we'll stick with it for now. Piranesi is what we'll go with. Uh, Essie might slip in there. Um, and it is a novel, fantasy novel by Susanna Clark. I'm checking that name though again. Yeah, Susanna. I wasn't sure if it was Susan. Susanna Clark. That's what we'll be discussing. That's why we're chatting so amiably about seaweed leather if you've never listened to the podcast before this is an okay place to start though we will be spoiling the first half of that book today so if you're spoiler reverse or you just haven't read the book and want to come back when you have then feel free to pause and come back later book clubs again are a deep dive and spoiler filled episodes so today we'll be discussing the first half of Piran Essie. i'm just gonna yeah i My brain's twisted now about that. I'm just going to keep pronouncing it both ways. Um, (laughs) Specifically, we'll be discussing parts one through three. That basically comes to exactly halfway through the book. So, again, if you're spoiler-averse, we'll be doing parts one through three, spoiling the entirety of it, discussing in analytical detail. If you don't follow us on social media, we'd ask kindly that you could and should and would and all the verbs. We are on Instagram and Facebook (laughs) at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so we're pretty easy to find. We post updates about what we're reading upcoming book picks all that kind of thing so keep up with us there that's where we generally keep the schedule updated though i i'm falling behind less up to date than ever but you know you can also just you know keep up in the podcast feed wherever you found this keep checking back we post regularly we just don't always update regularly that's falls off sometimes amanda Mm -hmm. any content warnings for today i could think of none i don't think so i mean there's like maybe murder going on but we're not sure so references to you know this, a person plans says he would kill another person if certain conditions were met. So, yeah. you know, there's lightly discussed. But it is, yeah, awfully small things. I could not think of any. Really no content warnings to speak of. So pretty easy, easy going stuff. Shall we dive right in, Amanda? Anything else before as prelude before we start? No, let's do it. Other than just mispronouncing the main character's name. So 
<laughs> we could just call him Pete. Pete. Yeah. My friend P, Mr. P. <laughs> yeah, let's jump into our first segment, then get this get this rolling. We do sixty second summaries at the beginning of our book club episodes. This is just a challenge so that we can summarize the work thus far. And you know, it's kind of a fun, goofy way for us to try and rack our brains and think of everything we possibly can in that amount of time. If you haven't mm-hmm. read the book, this might help a little bit. I, I frankly don't know how much it helps non readers, but it's the you know, middle ground we settled on when we wanted to stop summarizing books <laughs> so much all the time <laughs> constantly. And so this is what we settled on. Anyway, do you want to go first or do we decide it's the person who picks goes first? It's the person who picked that goes okay. first. Yeah. This was my pick. So I will happily start my 60 second summary. I've got a timer as well. I don't mind doing the timers on these. So I've got mine ready. I will start right now. Piranesi is a character who lives in a massive labyrinthian library of seemingly no end. It is filled with statues. The top floor is clouds and birds fly in from there. The bottom floor is an ocean that seems very active. And the middle floor is just, you know, you can just walk around. Again, there's statues all over the place. Some are mythological, some are real. Piranesi is like a scientist. He's trying to understand what's going on and how big the labyrinth is he lives in, but he can't quite figure it out. There's another person who lives there, a human man who dresses like a kind of a college professor in nice suits. His name is The Other, or at least that's what Piranesi calls him. One day while adventuring, Piranesi discovers another human man who has shown up in this labyrinthian mysterious library who discusses some things with him and tells him to be careful of the other and that another person might be trying to find them in their library. The other seems kind of bothered by this and threatens to maybe kill Piranesi so no one else can find him. Piranesi also keeps journals and eventually one day discovers that his old journals are about events he does not remember or understand and he's trying to unravel that mystery and try and understand like who he is and who other people are that's the time <laughs> great got wow. very vague got at the all. end but well yeah i guess i yeah kind of sort i guess but at the end i was like uh, uh, vague references okay so that's my 60 second summary of the first half of this book amanda feel free to obviously fill in whatever i left out and cover the basics yep. are you ready i'm ready all right you can start now um so we're actually reading Pyrenees's um books his journals so it's written as though they're his journal writings um and so we get to see a lot of like his personality and stuff like that we know that he's um very humble he seems to treat this as almost like a a religious thing um so he finds some some bones and he um offer gives offerings to the to the bones and stuff like that and names them so that's why um the person that he encounters or that he thinks he's encountering is um he's named him 16 because that's the 16th person aside from the bones and um himself and the other and the person that he meets um also tells him that um the other's real name is Ketterly and that Ketterly is um and Ketterly is still searching for the great knowledge, um, which is uh, the ability for like telekinesis and uh, mind control and stuff like that. Uh, so some Fine. magic stuff. Yeah. Control whose minds, you know, whose minds could even That's bother what controlling. was wondering. Yeah. <laughs> no lesser minds around. We're, you know, we're equals here, aren't we? Excellent. Good. You feel a lot of the color too. the bones, you know, his his personification of these skeletons that are just hanging about haunting the hallways um the only other major thing i missed that i wanted to mention was that he seemingly you think at the time hallucinates that he sees people at times or there's like a car mechanics it's kind of implied anyway that it's maybe like a car mechanic and he hears yeah. conversation so he does 
seem to sometimes notice people, but the, clearly he lives in this, again, like, labyrinth of hallways of statues. Um, there's also kind of a bit of an expletive, or not expletive, that's very different, um, explanatory background kind of info dump from the character who comes into the world. And so there's a little bit explained there. Obviously still some mysteries to be determined, but he does explain sort of like that this is a, what does he call it, a pocket world or a projection mm-hmm. world or something. So interesting. Well, let's dive into some quotes. That's enough of a summary. We teased it out. Let's dive into specifics. We're going to do our quotes for clarification now. This is when each person picks a few quotes that we want to discuss. Things that are meaningful or impactful or just interesting so far that have grabbed our attention. Uh, why don't you go first, Amanda? What do you got? What do you want to talk about first? Sure. Um, I'll start with the, the first page, um, so, which is actually page three. Mm-hmm. At the bottom, there was a really great description of the tides, and it really drew me in and was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this writing style. Um, so it says, first came the tide from the far eastern halls. This tide ascended the easternmost staircase without violence. It had no color to speak of, and its waters were no more than ankle deep. It spread a gray mirror across the pavement, the surface of which was marbled with streaks of milky foam. Next came the tide from the western halls. This tide thundered up the westernmost staircase and hit the eastern wall with a great clap making all the statues tremble. Its foam was the white of old fish bones, and its churning depths were pewter. Within seconds, its waters were as high as the waists of the first tier of statues. Last came the tide from the northern halls. It hurled itself up the middle staircase, filling the vestibule with an explosion of glittering ice-white foam. I was drenched and blinded. Um, anyway, so I just thought, wow, like I, I love that this... Uh, character and also the writer is giving um personality to these tides and making it even more um uh, like something to to be worshipped in a way um which is what piranesi does um and and the description is really beautiful and really powerful i feel like um with the 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 verbiage that goes along with how it's like without violence and then there is violence and then it's like an overtaking with violence um so i I just thought that that was a really well done description of the environment from the very beginning one thing that becomes clear too it just in a plot sense is that Piranesi, we don't know clearly if he came from another world, you know, Earth, presumably, like our world, and it lives here now or was trapped or born here. Like, there's a lot of unknowns, obviously. But one critical thing the book does so well at the start is because the setting we know as human readers from Earth, his his life is, this is a nowhere place. This is like an empty, vacant, void, kind of an eerie, scary place. But he just is, he, he has such an innocence and a scientific mind, and that's kind of his duality as he's, He wants to explore. He wants to learn and categorize. And so, yeah, one thing I found impressive with some of the early descriptions is she has to convince us, I mean, from his, you know, first person point of view, but like that this world is wondrous and interesting when like, again, objectively, it's just not meaning like objectively me as a human reader, knowing like what the world is actually full of all the diversity and wonder, like his world is really fixed and really narrow and the statues are fascinating maybe, but it's just all statues. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so, yeah, like moments like the one you just read are so critical because it she makes the world seem interesting, curious, even vast when it's just really not objectively. That's part of the, you know, genius trick of his point of view. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, so and what yeah. a great point, too. It, it fills it with life because otherwise, the as he 
kind of states at the beginning, there's only him and then sometimes the other when the other visits him. Right. So otherwise, there's like uh, no life except for some of the birds, some of the the tides themselves, the sky, the lightning sometimes, and, and yeah. the food, the, the crabs and stuff that he eats, so... Yeah. Well, and it's, it shows, too, how her skillful hand at kind of narrating it, doling out the information, I'll say that... I just love throwing shade, apparently, Amanda. We read a mystery book a while ago. <laughs> I mean, how much more compelling is this mystery? Granted, I'm, I'm just a sucker for fantasy, sci-fi, yeah. fantastical things. But, like, this is how a mystery can be carefully doled out. It's also, of course, a ton of dramatic irony because we can assume and uh, just, like, we have a lot of thoughts as human readers... Uh, and we're, you know, about the setting that is like like Earth, but also, you know, clearly not. It's like he's lost in an infinite museum. And so, of yeah. course, we can interpose that on the text, but then also and, you know, there's enough to make that worthwhile because the ocean has real ocean stuff and the birds are real birds. And like he seems to know things about Earth, but then can't explain how he knows them. You know, some kind of amnesia right. maybe going on again, something unexplored fully in the text at this point. But, yeah, I think those early moments are so critical. I'll admit um, some proper noun capitalization stuff got me down. But even that I kind of respected because he basically has the voice of a Victorian or Elizabethan era scientist, kind of. <laughs> like, he's just capitalizing random stuff because he thinks it's important. And he's, like, trying to classify and categorize everything, which I found, right. you know, kind of fascinating early on. So, yeah, it's a great start for him. It's just yeah, like... Yeah. I, I, I also was... Uh surprised by the capitalization i was like oh are we going like with you know how in german in german they capitalize all the nouns so i was like oh that's what happened but it's not it's 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 like he's giving proper names to these just the things in his world the only things he can categorize it's like statue a wave sky (laughs) types of birds (laughs) that fly in uh the only other i pulled the description too early from the setting that i thought was so well done it's a brief little one on 28 it says not everything about the wind was bad sometimes it blew through the little voids and crevices of the statues and caused them to sing and whistle in surprising ways i had never known the statues to have voices before and it made me laugh for sheer delight it's yeah, it's such a great little duality that she accomplishes where we get his innocence. He is very innocent, even though he's deeply scientific and thoughtful and intelligent. He also just clearly just doesn't fully comprehend everything about what's going on around him, though he wants to explore and study it. So there's that element. But also it's just, you know, it's a good bit of creativity, imagery. It gives life to the setting. It shows, too, I think we've already covered this well, but it's such a critical thing she does early. But it makes a really lifeless and small place seem filled with like intrigue and life and like little human not human but like setting compelling little setting details which yeah for this book is so essential because if this setting seemed bland or disinteresting or dull or static or something then it would be like it'd be really hard to get into this book i think but the opposite happens so it's like wow it's you know really grips you yeah the, um, it's so funny. I also pulled a quote from that same page, so, but just a little bit above it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually to do with um, characterization, so Piranesi's characterization. So tying in with the idea of like his innocence, but also like he's really um, logic-minded. He's all about reasoning and logic, and he thinks it's like the greatest sin that somebody is like <laughs> going mm-hmm. against logic. Um, so it says... 
Uh, as I crossed the 11th Western Hall, the wind knocked me from one paving stone to another as if I were a chess piece on a board. I made some highly original moves. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, so, just how kind of like cheesy that is a little bit, the that joke that he inserts yeah. there into yeah. his journal. It's just so indicative of like who he is as um, a character and just like how how sweet and and innocent he is in a lot of ways um but also like the comparing it to specifically a chessboard like i think that's also um a great indication of the fact that he he does think of things at, in in a scientific manner aside from uh his his religious rituals and stuff yeah no it's it's a great bit of character work with him, and it's one of the benefits of that first-person style, the journalistic. I mean, whether or not we buy... Granted, this person lives alone in a void space with nothing to do. He's definitely really writing these journals. <laughs> it's not like a real person in modern life that like somehow has time to crank out incredibly detailed journals. Some people do diary. I shouldn't, I shouldn't downplay that. But no, it's, it sells it perfectly. It's, you know, this is him being his scientific way, trying to understand his own predicament and everything. It's, yeah, it's great. I've got another bit of characterization did you have any other character work for him you wanted to discuss nope that was that was it okay i've got another bit here in 61 let me pull this quote quickly yeah here a couple of things from 61 says the thought um this thought led to uh sorry this thought led on to another there we go i realized that the other's description of the powers that the knowledge will grant has always made me uneasy for example he says that when we will have the power to control lesser minds well to begin with there are no lesser minds there are only him and me and we both have a keen and lively intellect or lively intellects but supposing for a moment that a lesser mind existed why would i want to control it abandoning the search for knowledge would free us to pursue a new sort of science we could follow any path of the day suggested to us the thought of all this made me excited and happy i was eager to return to the other and explain it to him so do you get a childlike sense from this there are times when his narration is is you know he's explaining so so simplistically and clearly which in a sense it did work for me i there's versions of this narrator that would be in his intellectual rigor and sort of towering I don't know, his towering genius or something. Like, it would be hard to read, intimidating to read, etc. But I, I'm finding his voice to be just balanced perfectly. It's childlike, it's innocent. His thoughts can be maybe a little too simplistic at times, but they're also scientific in his own way, and he's being thorough, trying to be thoughtful and careful with things, and doesn't want to, you know, tip anything or be too aggressive or, you know, do anything wrong. So I'm finding, yeah, I don't know why I pulled that quote other than just to show the kind of balance it's striking. Maybe it veers into childlike a bit too much at times. Um, the, the other person who visits too, not the other, what did he name him? The prophet? The prophet, yeah, that's what he named him. Mm -hmm. The prophet does almost speak down to him a little bit because it's implied heavily that the prophet is kind of the mathematician scientist who discovered all of this, who kind of kicked all of this off, these pocket worlds and other places or dimensions or something. And so he, it almost like he condescends, but at the end he does compliment Piranesi as well. So how do you read, are you picking up on this? I guess I called it innocence or childlike. Do you have any other, yeah, any other characterization thoughts, I guess, following up? Yeah, with um, with that particular quote, he calls um, when he reaches that logical conclusion. He doesn't call it a logical conclusion. He calls it a revelation, which has a very religious um, yeah. overtones. So I think the innocence. I agree with you. Like the he's got 
he's so logically inclined, but also there's that that innocence and the simplicity with which he uses language to clarify his thoughts. Um, yeah. But I think that's also tied in with his his almost like religious fervor when it comes to his situation to the house, to the tides, to yeah. his uh, work with the other. Um, so the word uh, revelation is really telling there. And I think that's what makes him seem so innocent as well, is that um, it's it's just tied in with his ideas of like, I need to pray to the house. And what does he say to the guy? Um, May the house keep you or something like yeah, that. Like, he's got his own. Yeah, of course. He has to have a little closing tagline, slogan, whatever, etc. Yeah. Did you find, I didn't have a quote on this because I wanted to discuss one other thing in the quotes, but did you find in the end that the other is veering more towards into religious zealotry type behavior? He's the one who talks about killing him potentially, and he's also the one who's obsessed with the power, the knowledge. Doesn't seem like a very scientific concept, even if they're sort of attacking it scientifically. He also wants um. He ended up calling the dark room a temple, right? Or was it not temple? Yeah. Or he yeah, asked he if it's like a temple or an altar. It's a temple. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm finding that that this is not my motif, but it definitely could have been. My I went kind of the science way. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Granted, there's some obvious contrast though that I think you're picking up on too, and the other displays some of that contrast as well, where it's like he's willing to behave in this kind of fantastical thinking if it it gets him the knowledge. Right. So it's like not. Uh, the way that I think of the other is is not so much because he does have his rituals, but his rituals aren't tied to um, the house. It's to get something out of the house, which is the 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 knowledge, the ancient knowledge that he's searching. Right. So if if he is venerating anything, it would be power and yeah. and that in that particular, the, the pursuit of that power. Whereas Piranesi's uh, religious fervor is about like, almost like the experience that he's in. Right. Right. Now that's a good point. Shall we close the quotes? I think we pick similar things with some of the journal revelations because it does, the prophet chapter does reveal extremely clear and explicit connections. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, it's working quite mysteriously going into the second half still, but I think we have at least a couple of pretty obvious connections or explanation starts. Did you have one to start with for a quote? Yeah. Like uh, going off on, on the religious fervor stuff, like straight up, like, I feel like these people are kind of a cult, at least it's yeah. described as a cult. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so the the dude who, um, what was his name? D. Uh, Arn Sales. Yeah, yeah. Right? So he's the one who um, has gathered these people who um, are his almost like um, disciples yep. in some way. University uh, mathematicians. Some yes, multidisciplinarians, um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but the way that he treats them is that it's described as he gets jealous when they spend time away from him. Um, He expects complete obedience from them. He punishes them. Um, Perhaps he murders them. Is that like... Did it's you heavily implied with, yeah. with her, with Diagnostio. Di- yeah. yeah, sorry. <laughs> Diagostino. Diagostino, Di- yeah. Diagostino, yeah. So it says, um, and I'll just show you an example of like 
of what it was. I was like, oh my gosh, it's a cult. Um, she was an only child and had always been very close to her parents, particularly her father. At some point in the mid-80s, Arne Sales instructed her to quarrel with her parents. According to Angarad Scott, this was a test of loyalty. D'Agostino cut off all contact with her parents and they never saw her again. Like, that's that's like cult 101 right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rely on them completely. Buy yeah. into the sort of social infrastructure of the cult so that you have no choices, options, no other right. connections left in the world. So um, so I was like thinking about that. And then he calls. Um, so Piranesi calls the guy that shows up. He calls him uh, the prophet. And the prophet is saying that Ketterly was one of his students and that he um, he seems other clues. to be Arn Sales. Right? Right. So do we, he do was we in trust prison. him? <laughs> I yeah. mean, yeah. Well, the other thing that begs, the question that begs to be asked, of course, that Piranesi doesn't even understand yet, is who wrote these journals? Like, presumably he did, which means right. he knows, I mean, th- we also know the labyrinth, the maze, the location, whatever you want to call it. We know that it messes with memory, so it could just be that yeah. Piranesi's a person who has happened to survive, but has lived here just for a very long time, and seems yeah. trapped in it now, and obviously is like cycling back across the same memories and etc. But it, it at least should be open as a question of like, maybe these are his journals, also maybe not. Maybe he just renumbered mm-hmm. them or found them or something. It's hard to say. They're very authoritative though, like these summaries yeah. of Arn Sales and the out Outside, let's just call it Earth, I guess. Uh, Earth in the, yeah. what, the 80s or something, 70s. Um, it, they seem kind of definitive and exhaustively detailed. So it's like, okay, that person must have either is lying extensively or knows, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll add to the cult thing. This is my quote from the journals. There's a lot of, it's kind of info dumpy, but intriguing. I think also it's the good kind of mystery feeling where it feels like you're finally getting a payout or a pay, payout, payoff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it didn't feel cheap or anything. And, and it also retains enough mystery, the story, that this info dump section didn't feel annoying or sort of like a slog. It was, you know, it's like you're getting a little reward and even though it's not over. Anyway, this is another culty aspect. This is with Ritter, the sort of... Um, mentally disabled, cognitively impaired uh, person who he, he also employs. Uh, it says, uh, Bra- Arn Sales brainwashed Ritter in order to lend credence to his claims that the other worlds not only existed, but that he and the other people had been there. Certainly, Ritter's description of the house is similar to the vast, empty rooms in Sylvia D'Agostino's film, The Castle. It is also similar to Arn Sales' own description of the other world in the book he wrote in prison, The Labyrinth. Of course, it's perfectly possible that Arn Sales simply elaborated on Ritter's hallucinations, but if that was what Arn Sales' aim was, to manufacture evidence of another world then then why did he choose a man with a history of delusional illness as his witness so a couple yeah critical developments one is that he's willing to take advantage of anyone you know manipulate like you said clear cult behaviors and manipulation and social pressure and all of the negative horrible you know disgusting things i also was really compelled I don't know if the story's going to dig into this idea more, but I was really compelled by this notion that these this kind of renegade rogue group intellectuals academics they're trying to convince people that the other place exists. They write accounts. They have these creepy films. I'm not sure why, but that kind of found footage. It almost felt like found footage to me in a in a weird way. I guess because the movie yeah. is in there, and that just really compelled me too. That there's this weird 
eerie, desperate attempt to explain, but you know that they can't. And so, yeah, I, I, I thought those little revelations worked so well. Yeah, I, I also... Um, and the It was, like, creepy in a way, too, because um, they also, like, the John Ritter was the one that they found behind the wall, right? And the, yeah. they found him because the cleaning lady had, like, noticed that there was, like, some some waste coming out of the wall and when she pressed it more was coming out so she alerted the authorities and and that's when they tore down the wall and found john ritter like half mad and like covered in waste and everything else and and it was just like man like it gives you a creepy feeling as you're reading it's like a cult and then there's this like they're imprisoning people possibly and then there's these creepy movies like i yeah what a nice touch to to this whole experience and I, think. I think that's such a delicate thing too because when you're gonna do this expo you know any fantasy sci-fi has moments heavy exposition this is it's necessity it's kind of it's part of the form it's you, you have to do this and so to do it so subtly and also to build further on the mystery, we again don't know if Piranesi actually wrote these or if it was someone else or if they can be trusted. But yeah, and then also to make it kind of snippets, things are unclear, there's eeriness at the edges. It's, um, yeah, it's just well done, very skillful, I thought, and like really smart. Yeah. Yeah. Immersive, too, I agree. I'd say. Any mm -hmm. other quotes? I know we got our motifs coming up, so we'll save some things for that. Any other thoughts on quotes or anything we just missed? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. No skeleton talk yet either. You know, we'll get there uh, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Should we have... Um, well, you know, I kind of want yours to go first for motifs just because I feel like you had gotten into yours more. So I, I, I kind of just want to lay, lay it out for you, set the stage. Do you want to go oh, first? Sure. Sure, I can okay. do that. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. The motif segment we always do in Book Club Part 1, and this is just when each of us picks some kind of repeated... Well, anything, a motif's pretty open-ended. Style element, theme element, detail from the story that we're noticing. Anything that repeats really works well here. And so Amanda's going to give hers first. We'll talk about her motif. And uh, again, you've already kind of tipped it here, but do you want to explain what I it did, is? I did, yeah. Sure. Um, this is what I've, I've been kind of hinting at, I suppose, is um, uh, rituals and religious thinking, especially for Piranesi. <clears throat> um, so we see... Um, speaking of the dead and, and the skeletons, um, that he honors the the dead. Actually, that he the the bones that he finds, and he's um, he kind of takes care of them. Uh, the thirteen, I believe, is what he calls them, because there's mm -hmm. right, yeah, the thirteen. Um, he's a kind he actually, kind of scientist, you know, very thoughtful, very human. Yeah, yeah, he he does rituals like so. It's not every day, but he makes an effort. I think it's like once every two weeks. I think is what he said. He goes to each of the bones and he does offerings he gives them food and drink and he like prays for them essentially and speaks with them and keeps them company um and and he says that it is specifically like to show um that he is um it's a ritual that he thinks is important. So I visit all the dead, but particularly the folded up child. I bring them food, water, and water lilies from the drowned halls. I speak to them, telling them what I have been doing, and I describe any wonders that I have seen in the house. In this way, they know that they are not alone. Only I do this. The other does not. As far as I know, he has no religious practices. So even mm. Piranesi identifies this as a religious practice, mm, which... 
is interesting coming from a, a scientific background that he does um, we, we assume too i think we just have right. to because of the yeah. now we know that the journaling mathematicians and that these people he's literally met one is like a disgraced cult professor <laughs> professor of math cults <laughs> math and science cult <laughs> that's right the worst kind um there's also the deification of the house um so the in that same passage that I just read, um, when he's mm-hmm. talking about the folded up child uh, skeleton, he, he, he reaches some conclusions about uh, why there's a child. And so he thinks that actually the house meant to provide the child for him. So he says, I have given a great deal of thought to this child's relationship to me. There are living in the world, as I've already explained, only myself and the other, and we are both male. How will the world have an inhabitant when we are dead? It is my belief that the world, or if you will, the house, since the two are for all practical purposes identical, wishes an inhabitant for itself to be a witness to its beauty and the recipient of its mercies. I have postulated that the house intended the folded up child to be my wife. Only something happened to prevent it. Ever since I had this thought, it has seemed only right to share with her what I have. Yeah. So giving the house personification in in that way and the ability to choose his his fate and his destiny in some way right um and um he also thinks Does, of can we pause on mm-hmm. that quote before you move on does that i know i alluded to this yeah. earlier this is also not my motif but does that not reek of kind of darwin era science writing like it's it's science mm. in the way we know it, but early days when everyone was basically Christian in the West doing that science. So it's like you get this scientific classification style of writing and these theories of science that are starting to become pretty formalized and professionalized. But then mm-hmm. all of it is still filtered through religious talk and language. Yeah. It reminded yeah. me a lot of that. Just I, yeah. it's funny too because it's not like an area I know extremely well, but I've seen just enough snippets of that kind of talk and writing that it's just like, man, that it just sounds so much like that stuff. Yeah, I had not made that connection before, but that does fit well. You and I actually read a bit of Charles Darwin together oh, yeah. for Penguin on one of the. Yeah, that's right, and um, I think that was something that you and I had discussed as well. But yeah, it's. That's definitely something that um, I'll have to pay more attention to because I had not made that connection before. Yeah, it's, and so this timelessness, he's yeah, he's such a person out of time, Piranesi. You just can't... Yeah, and I know from the journals, we've gotten some explicit references to Earth time, like what years it might be. Mm-hmm. 2012 mm-hmm. is, I think, directly referenced at some point. I think. I yeah. think. And so... But he... Yeah, the way he speaks, thinks it's either childlike or early science-like. Anyway, sorry, continue on. I, had to interject yeah Yeah, um he also um thinks about the house's wishes like what would the house want from me so we see that he says um is it disrespectful to the house to love some statues more than others Uh, i sometimes ask myself this question it is my belief that the house itself loves and blesses equally everything that it has created should i try to do the same (laughs) which is interesting that he's Hmm thinking about that and then um 
what use would invisibility be, be to me? Most days there's no one here to see me except the birds, nor do I have any desire to live forever. The house ordains a certain span for birds and another for men. With this, I am content. So the house mm. makes these decisions. Um, and then, um, as I mentioned before, with the rejection for the search of knowledge, so he's like, I need to tell the other that I don't want to look for knowledge anymore. That word revelation there, that was very much... Um, a huge indicator of of religion, and I think he also says, um, "One second, yep." Uh, he says, "I realize that the search for the knowledge has encouraged us to think of the house as if it were a sort of riddle to be unraveled, a text to be interpreted, and if and that if ever we discover the knowledge, then it will be as if the value has been wrested from the house, and all that remains will be mere scenery." So the danger with knowledge in, in that revelation right. is that he the the house is no longer deified. It is just a thing. Yeah, um, yeah. A means to an end, yeah. That might be one of the book's most important quotes. I didn't even think to pick that one. But that's, yeah, that that would... I think thematically that's it's just going to be so essential about wherever the story goes, who wants to use this place and to what ends. It, does it have a purpose? And if it doesn't, then should we even care about it? It's yeah, that's raising pretty those essential kind of existential questions about around religion too and what its purpose yep. is. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a, a crisis for him. It could be yeah, a crisis yeah. for him. Um, and then the the greetings that he uses. So um, he when he writes that note, he ends it with, May the house in its beauty shelter us both. And then when he's saying goodbye to the prophet, also the word prophet, he says, right. Then, sir, may your paths be safe. I said, your floors unbroken. And may the house fill your eyes with beauty. Um, so again the deification there of the house and using the house as like may, may god shelter you right um, give blessings give praise give you know <laughs> yeah all of those things in, then, in, in a parting mm-hmm. um and then we have on page 112 just his his line of reasoning about the house here the other and the prophet have both stated that the house itself is a source of madness and forgetfulness. They are scientists and men of intellect. When two such impeccable authorities are in agreement, then I believe I must accept their conclusions. The house is the cause of my forgetting. Do you trust the house? I ask myself. Yes, I answer myself. And if the house has made you forget, then it has done so for good reason. But I do not understand the reason. It does not matter that you do not understand the reason. You are the beloved child of the house. Be comforted. And I am comforted. That reads mm. like the Bible. <laughs> right? That had a very biblical, like the, the the back and forth like that. And then the ending of, and I am comforted. That to me was very much like something that you would find in the Bible. It, yeah, it really is. I. It's funny too. I went so hard on the science that... My thought with the other was just very different about the approach to the story and how it's treating science and religion in dialogue with each other or something. But, hmm. Yeah, so the other thing is um, there is a comparison to the other where Piranesi, as I, as I had quoted before, specifically 
notes that the other does not do the religious practices. He does call um, uh, the other's uh, Kitter, Kitterly's um, activities, ceremonies, and rituals. But the way that he looks at it, he does not relate it to religion. It almost seems like he's relating it to almost like mm. like witchcraft or something like, you know, something that is outside of, of religion. Yeah. You need the spells and the vibes. Exactly. I wonder if Arn um, Sales then would be... Because he just kind of scoffs at this whole... I mean, he seems amused by it, like he wanted to revisit this place one more time or something. It's, it mm-hmm. seems to him, though, to be a less of a deep interest in just a curiosity that he happened to discover (laughs) and apparently just not convinced. I don't know though. It's hard to say if the outside world believed him or not. Again, based on the journals we're treating as kind of found footage cult conspiracy. People don't believe any of these folks, but then again, it's like maybe he discovered other pocket worlds. I don't know. Cause it's, I guess I'm trying to think of Arn sales in this dichotomy, this religious versus science kind of dichotomy. Cause it's hard to say where he ended up. Other than in prison yeah. for kidnapping a man and t- basically torturing him. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. That's something that I think maybe will be explored more in the latter half, but I I'm so. also interested in seeing how, how he kind of fits in this in this thought process and this like dichotomy maybe maybe we just go full blown and combine these honestly because i have this quote from the other i just want to talk about now he was there was the quote i was going to pull about him being spiritual yeah we've already our motifs have already so intertwined here it's pointless to separate them now (laughs) it would be (laughs) false we've already yeah we've this whole time we've been kind of blending them anyway so a natural combination we're working here so this is (laughs) this is on 48 when he actually does think through the room um says what about a star i said if we pour the ritual at night you can address the invocation to a star a star is a source of power and energy weird combo of science and religion there it's like true and also yeah. kind of not true a moment silence then he said that's true he said he sounded surprised a star that's actually not a bad idea he thought some more a fixed star would be better than a wandering one and it would need to be bright appreciably brighter than the surrounding stars what would be best would be to find somewhere in the labyrinth some point or place that's unique and to perform the ritual there facing the brightest star for the moment he was full of excitement then he sighed and all that energy seemed to drain out of him again but that's not very likely is it then he said that again the hall was exactly like every other hall except he called them rooms and he used an epithet meant to denigrate them and then he feels a surge of anger and he mentions the darkness room but the that methodology to me it does not reek of you know he's not exactly if it is science he's not fully explaining his method you know it's more it is more mystical it's more unexplained it's vibes to put it in the you know the slang of the of the times we're recording this in so i think yeah and then he of course requests it like is you mean like a temple yes like a temple why didn't you tell me about this before he's kind of annoyed it's really far away um so yeah i i just think for some reason in my own reading of the book I was picking up on the other as kind of the, I don't know, like a lazier scientist or more myth and mystic based person. But I maybe that's also because we're getting Piranesi's point of view. And I know that he can be very rigorously scientific, like annoyingly yeah. to himself, annoyingly at, at times and how he wants to process things. Yeah, I I think I was I just thought of this, too, with the with the temple and the star stuff, that particular ceremony or ritual i i think you and you use the word mystic it makes me think that perhaps it is 
The other is also religious, but more of like the pagan religion, more mm-hmm. of, along the lines of like the uh, like uh, the polytheistic, um, like Roman and and Greek gods type of thing with the temple. Because if you think about the statues as well, the statues are either like the angels and the Christian motifs, or they have minotaurs and centaurs and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So. It's like one or the other, which so the the other literally could be the representation for like that the old religion like that, whereas uh, Piranesi is more of like the the monotheistic type. The it's mm. true Christian Judaism. Yeah, Islam more well, more modern. Stuff. I mean, those are ancient yeah. religions too, but right. more the, the modern versions or something. More right. modern than than pagan paganism in most forms. Right. Yeah. The I was gonna pull this quote too for Piranesi just about his scientific approach and how he kind of like uses different tides and pays attention to things. Um, he says their waters. This is about the tides. Their waters were still, and I was not so afraid. The difficulty here was that the drowned halls were surrounded by dereliction on all sides. To reach them, it was necessary to go up to the upper halls and then descend by means of the wreckage through their great rents and gashes on the floor. And he kind of does so. Later, when he's up and exploring some of the upper halls, he says, These statues depicted human or demi-human figures, all two or three times my own stature, and all in the throes of violent action. Men fighting, women and men being carried off by centaurs or satyrs, octopuses tearing people apart. In most regions of the house, the expressions of the statues are joyful or tranquil, are possessed of a distant calm, but here the faces were distorted in screams, rage, anguish. So he does seem to care. I guess the combo here is like he does seem to care about these emotions. He definitely personifies the statues because, you know, he's lonely. He makes a whole life, a world, to put it, out of this small place that's, again, very gloomy and empty and just it's literally just statues. So it makes sense. It's, again, very humanizing. I thought a really brilliant turn. But, uh, yeah, the reason I want to quote with the tides is just because the narrative is very readable, but it is scientific. He's thorough. He explains his processes. You know, he does things carefully and thoughtfully and is logical in turns. So it is a combination of those two mindsets i guess that doesn't i know fully connect to the mystic mythic part because i don't he's like he worships the satyr statues or believes them to be real he just observes them and and gives symbolic meaning to them he's he's in in his um descriptions of the statues he often also includes what he thinks they represent symbolically Mm. uh, which i also find really interesting that was like when I, i remember writing the note when i was taking notes while reading i was just like where is he getting this symbolic meaning from like this is before i read the prophet chapter and everything so i was like what (laughs) yeah also this is a bigger question a little bit off the motifs and i wish i had the quote for this too because i know there was one but i I fear by misquoting it i'm going to horribly misinterpret this whole book isn't doesn't the prophet say that these little pocket worlds represent is it human memories that are, have now been like lost or is it it's a catalog of human memories or is it a catalog of human experiences? I guess the thing I'm building to is, is this book suggesting that those mythical beings were real? It's just that they're long forgotten and lost. Or is it suggesting that people like thought they were real? And so this is where all that stuff gets categorized, kind of kept. I can't remember what he said. He said something like that. 
Yeah, it. Um, I remember that too, and I remember interpreting it. So my interpretation, I, which could be wrong because I'm not sure where that quote is either. But my interpretation of what I read from what he said was that they were real, which is why the knowledge, the ancients' knowledge, would that's be why so Kitterly powerful. Is, yeah, exactly. That's why Kitterly is on the search for that. Yeah. It's, it's something like it's something that we've lost. Right. Is I think what he right. said. Like we could, yeah, he, I could bring minotaurs back. I could reinvent these mythic beings and creatures. And, right. Um, notably, and we'll get to the statues soon, soon enough anyway. This is a spoiler or um, foreshadowing, rather. I haven't spoiled it yet. Anyway, <laughs> I, it is suggested heavily that I don't like they're only, are, there's no gods, I guess is what I'm trying to build to. It seems like mostly the critters, the creatures are. Do you think there's been any references to like, oh no, Poseidon is a real, was a real powerful deity that was real it's just that we have you know lost touch with him was there anything like that in here or did you just interpret it because the statues are ominous in their own way and maybe there were some slight illusions i just missed did you pick up on it like there's actual gods or is it just sort of these yeah these nature-bound creatures yeah i didn't see um i don't recall any statues that were in the likeness of any of the gods at all um, yeah. The only, like, the closest thing was when um, Piranesi was describing the albatross as, like, a white cross. Um, that oh, was, like, the yeah, closest yeah. thing to any kind of, like, godlike thing aside from the house itself. Yeah. Real down from the heavens energy there. Yeah. Blinded by yeah. the white light. <laughs> Pretty, mm-hmm. yeah, some clear archetypes coming into play. He followed that bird, but whatever happened to it, it didn't die or anything. It didn't just kind of wander the halls. That's. Yeah. So he, he likes Pyrenees. He stretches his arms out, very Christ like figure. And there's a moment where it seems like they're about to merge, and Pyrenees wonders if he looks like an angel with the wings around him like that. Mm-hmm. Um, all very. <laughs> very religious um but then it like gets awkward and like the albatross just kind of like swerves last minute out of the way and like lands and is just like kind of walking around but then the albatross mates there's like another albatross they mate they have an egg and they have a little little chick that's what it was okay yeah. Bringing new life indeed to the house. My final point on our motif combo our du- duality dual purpose motif um I, how, plot wise and theme wise then the biggest revelation probably has been that his whole journaling system is not a lie but that there's a massive gap he's forgotten about that it's not that he wasn't doing diligent journaling but just that he was operating under a false sense of his own history and knowledge and stuff so how do you read that within the motif like is it is it calling into question the scientific method is it trying to put some doubt in it thematically that this that his meticulous scientific approach might be not actually benefiting him or that it's overwhelming him or, you know, that this place, because it strips all that away, does is like resisting that type of approach. I just found that to be, obviously, for plot reasons, it's extremely important to, you know, that he starts rediscovering about his own history and Arn sales. But did you have any thoughts on that thematically? That that system that, like, the book is literally being driven by seems to be falling apart halfway through? Becoming weird? <laughs> yeah, the, I think that that could be tied really well with the the idea of, like, the the overtaking of the house as a religious institution, as a religious mm-hmm. entity. 
um, and that is stripping him of some of his memories, the the logic based memories, like those those things where he remembers that what university is maybe if he really right, thinks right. about it he can write it down but but he doesn't know why he knows that yeah it's like stripping him of some of that that the the previous education and instilling him with with faith which mm. is indoctrination there yeah kind of pure <laughs> belief yeah I'll, yeah I'll hold off the indoctrination talk until i see how the house responds i'm gonna give it a little bit of leeway <laughs> but see, I, I don't want to uh you know i'm not gonna put the full full blame on the house quite yet we'll let's, let's see what it has up its sleeve <laughs> creepy hallways creepy um you know spooky empty halls any mm-hmm. final thoughts on the the motif duo no i think that worked out really well yeah it was excellent real yeah, real clear themes in a sense, but also there's so much mystery left that I yeah can't be impossible to predict or have a sense of where it could go. We'll see if maybe the ritual yeah. will work. You know, they're in a dark room. Why not? It's eerie in there. Maybe that's what the other just needs. Needs to see. Mm-hmm. 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 Or there's that mysterious third person, third human living person that might come in. So don't know who that is yet. Yeah. TBD. Yeah. Everybody else is dead, right? Like, he killed everyone. Ritter. Maybe it's Ritter. It could be Ritter, <laughs> yeah, finally going back and following some solace or closure there or something. And then, yeah, it's, didn't he at some point count up the bodies and he has he has a guess that he knows who they all are, more or less? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Different. Well, maybe not all of them, but it's 13. And isn't 13 the number of disciples in, in the Bible? Ooh, no, I don't know. That's a great question. Try Google that famous Last Supper image and <laughs> right. With, do some the thirteenth is 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 Judas, right? I truly don't know. Yeah, beyond me now. Number I could type up. I could disciples. go search my old theological notes from college if that if that would help. See some do some number. What is that called? Symbology or something? What like Robert Jordan style or not Robert Jordan? Who's the guy from the? Um, man, all the words are eluding me. Uh, those popular books that with the investigative guy in the Vatican and its mysteries, angels and demons, and what's the name of that book series? The Da Vinci Code. The, the, yeah, I was like, oh man, what? Who's Dan the Brown Who's the <laughs> inspector detective guy in those? Is it not something Jordan? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, well, Robert Jordan's a fantasy author, so I'm counting that on this episode. That counts as a correct <laughs> reference. <laughs> Oops. There are. 12 apostles but there is a the 13th apostle okay um who, who was chosen after uh, to replace judas oh okay maybe pyrenesis our replacement guy then he's doing a great mm. job i say keep it keep exploring <laughs> keep it up why not keep it moving all right let's make a list shall we motifs over let's, do it. let's jump into it our final segment in part one book clubs is always the same it is to make a top three list of something i felt strongly about this one so i dictated it i don't mind going first then did you you were able to do it it wasn't too it seemed like a natural fit yeah i mean that it was perfect <laughs> especially given because the other one that i was thinking was like top three science things or but like that became my motif so then i thought like that's not gonna i don't want to double down top three statues that's what we're doing references to statues uses of the statues i mean these are basically people to him to piranesi so it's they're pretty important and visually like we've talked about already they're they make for compelling study i've got a description i think only one of mine's going to be a quote well maybe two but this one's definitely going to be a quote because i thought this was a pretty rich and immersive way to write these again this setting is 
objectively boring, but that's what great writing can do. It makes things that are kind of bland intriguing. <laughs> anyway, and this is when um, I believe, let's see. Ah, there it is. I found it. I'm going to cut all that out, but listeners, you're right back in the saddle with me. This is from 33. It says, Ever since the ceilings of the 20th and 21st Northeastern Halls collapsed two years ago, the weather in this region of the house has changed. Clouds drift down through the broken ceilings and into the middle halls where normally they would not go. It makes the world chill and gray. This morning I awoke cold and shivering. A cloud had penetrated the third northern hall where I sleep. The statues were delicate, white images painted on white mist which is just you know taunting it's beautiful it's got that eeriness to it a lot of this book has a slight background low hum of eerie creepy you know and it's as if he's being spied on or something he's surrounded by ghosts and yeah small detail but i that image stuck with me so i had to pick it number three that's a great one i yeah i chose very specific statues i didn't think to look at like the statues as a whole but that's a great one Mm -hmm. as as a whole there um so the the one one of the ones that i chose was the statue that was covered in muscles yeah that grosses Um, me out read it anyway i I can take it (laughs) i hate seeing those on boats and such i don't i don't like there's a word there's a phobia word for this i don't love when there's a massive pile of little things Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, like when you lift up a log and there's like so many bugs that it's kind of like a pile of bugs where they're kind of, yeah. you know, where you can't, it's like a mass. It's like so crowded and overwhelmed that, it, does that make yeah. sense? I feel like there is a phobia word for this, but anyway, oh, yeah, sure. muscles <laughs> give me that feeling because they're so, they're kind of like piled up on top of each other and they're like a big gloopy pile mess, whatever. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you eat them? You like sometimes them? not my favorite but i'm you know i'm fine with them i don't think i'd go out of my way to order them but uh, if somebody brought them to the table as a sharing uh gesture i would enjoy one or two <laughs> um but please read i know that i just hijacked that whole thing rudely you're but <laughs> it's uh i had to say my phobia before you read just to get out of the way I hope you enjoy this then. Um, <laughs> one of the statues that lined the wall of the staircase was all but engulfed in a blue-black carapace of muscles with only half a staring face and one white outflung arm left free. I loved it. It struck me because it was so creepy and like really, as you were saying, it's kind of like this whole house is just like really eerie. And, like, a lot of the other statues that he describes, like, there's, like, an angel, although the an- one of the angels is, like, falling into a rose bush, which I think is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- they're often, there's something wrong with a lot of these statues. And the statue covered in yeah. muscles is, like, and, and it's just, like, one arm protruding is like being overtaken yeah i just thought that, what a what a crazy image like yeah being consumed by the sea the tides coming yeah so good yeah just yeah the the consumption the overwhelmingness the i don't know that feels extra repulsive it yeah like it's reaching out as a gasp to the statue to survive kind of a energy it's just uh mm-hmm. yeah not great <laughs> <laughs> Not great. Anyway, uh, my next quote, number two, on my top three, 
Uh, this one I'm not going to quote because I actually read this earlier. It's the whistling detail that I, I that's probably my actual number one, but I just put it as two to be I don't know to hedge against myself a, a tiny bit. But no, it's uh, yeah that I thought that detail was so haunting and eerie, but also the way he of course Piranesi writes it and how he gets it. I thought that was also perfect characterization because it shows how he can humanize and kind of gently love this world that. I, again, as just outsiders reading it, it's like, man, this is a doomed hallway of gloom and eeriness and yeah. lifeless death or whatever. You know, it's like, could not think of a stranger, creepier place, but he just loves it so much. And so that whole whistle, anyway, just per- perfect character moment, perfect combo. Yeah, yeah. I had to, had to pick it. That's so good. Um, I chose... Like I said, I chose very specific statues. So I also chose the the guy that was being trampled. Um, mm-hmm. It depicted a man, his vast body flailing backwards, stretched over the pavement, his arms thrown over his head as a centaur trampled on him. The palms of his great hands faced upwards and his fingers were curled in agony. I was just like, man, that's some, that's something that like stuck with me later too i was just like uh because he i think he also references he calls it the trampled man statue he references it later as well mm-hmm. and i knew mm-hmm. immediately um what statue he was talking about so yeah it was something that stood out in my mind and again shows like how there's each statue has there's like something wrong with it yeah and they're little they're just little people to him there's little buddies yep. <laughs> his only yep. friends you know the others all not being gonna... tortured in through eternity <laughs> yeah t- trapped in their worst moments though notably <laughs> we did quote this earlier that he said that so many of them are in kind of quiet repose and joy he just doesn't yeah he doesn't seem to he fixate on them <laughs> <laughs> does not care he's yeah much more curious about the tortured souls uh, that leads us to my number one this one again I, I don't know the whistling thing I think stuck with me the most but for number one just for the sake of list making and intrigue i'm gonna go with the minotaurs Mm. this is in the first vestibule on page 78 says the first vestibule is an impressive place larger than the majority of vestibules and more gloomy it is dominated by eight massive statues of minotaurs each one approximately nine meters high that is high they loom over the pavement darkening the vestibule with their bulk their massive horns jutting into the empty air their animal expressions solemn inscrutable the temperature is different from the others of the surrounding halls it is several degrees colder and there's a drought that blows from somewhere bringing with it a smell of rain metal and petrol uh, this is the and granted like i think you've attributed well he gives these kind of symbolic interpretations or I, but that that's the kind of description where i think is the author trying to what, what are they trying to do with these images what are they trying to denote with these differences in the halls what are the meanings here what are the you know what what is this place and what is it symbolically represent or what's it supposed to mean and i just found this to be very rich because it's anytime there's like a slightly different place within the infinitely repeating place i i just it grabbed my attention too it's another kind of genius part about the setting is like well when you have such a different atmosphere in a place that's mostly the same that's got to mean something um any yeah. ways that you read these minotaurs these beasts uh, it's interesting that there's the scent of um, petrol. Yeah. Right? Like, because yeah. that's not being used as far as, like, he shows us anyway. That's. Right. That's not being used. That would be anywhere. coming and, from the other, from Earthworld, presumably, you know. Right. There's, like, a bleed over or something. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't stop to ask himself what that is. 
yeah, yeah. Um, either. Um, but yeah, the Minotaurs are, are kind of menacing and, and in the story of the Minotaur as well, like uh, trapped in the labyrinth. That, right, and also. he's he's killed by uh, Perseus. Is it? I think Theseus, but you know whatever. Theseus? I think it's Theseus. Yeah. That's because you know Ariadne helps him with the string. I think it's Ariadne. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Gives him the string trick to get out. Backtrack. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it has that cl- that illusion is clear just in the Piranesi connection of being lost, trapped, trying to understand a world you maybe don't fully get. You need help. A lot mm-hmm. of obvious connections. I just thought the mood of it. And yeah, you're right with the petrol. It's like, well, is this supposed to be some kind of room? Is there a modern connection, modernity? Is there some kind of connection to the yeah. the outside that I'm not not that I'm not picking up on, but that we're supposed to. Have, I don't know. Fine. It's intriguing. I wouldn't be surprised if I thought about this later in the book when maybe we know more about the world or like who he is and where he came from and why and Mm -hmm. who knows what answers we'll get. But yeah, I think the Minotaurs, the difference of that just um, grabbed me again. And so I thought it would be my number one. Yeah, I like that. How about for you? Um, My number one is uh, the very first statue that he describes. It just is something that was so creepy and just stuck with me. It's the the woman carrying a beehive and she's got a bee just climbing all up in her eye. <laughs> like Yeah. It, it just immediately it creeped me out and and I was just like, what am I reading? <laughs> and yeah. it just stuck yeah. with me. And and she's referenced again a couple of times throughout the book because she's like uh in in the one of the main parts where he lives. So he's quite familiar yep. with her as one a of his statue. best buds. Yeah, it's it just, is. Yeah, <laughs> Do, is shame he can't get some honey out of it to supplement his seaweed fish diet. Shame <laughs> yeah. it's not real and he can't. You know, like let's have a little sweetened bun, or I guess you could do a sweetened seaweed sandwich. Uh, yeah, bit generous. Yeah, you could try it. Sure. <laughs> have you ever eaten a dish? Do you think that had seaweed and honey in the same dish? Maybe in a sauce somehow, or a soup? I don't think so i mean you yeah. can sweeten seaweed if um like in when you go to a sushi bar and you order the seaweed salad there that's mm. pretty sweet tasting to me oh but yeah. i don't know if they add honey gotcha gotcha yeah i don't hmm i just don't i've never been on board with seaweed i just can't i, I like it in oh, very man. small supplemental things in that sense and it has nothing flavor wise in common with this but in that sense it's kind of like kale where if it's part of a bigger thing and it's not the star, I'm like, okay, yeah, fine. I've had it with fish and sushi. Is I mean, it's commonly used in sushi rolls, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah, commonly. It's yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's like I enjoy it as a supplement, but the seaweed chips that I know people like, and you nail that those seaweed <sighs> salads you get as sides, just never, never done it for me. Never done it. Oh man, uh, those are. Seaweed chips are, like, one of my favorite snacks. Like, I mm. cannot keep them in the house because I will just eat the entire thing in one sitting. So I purposely do not buy this. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I, you know, I respect it as, like, a low-cal alternative to potato or other chips. You know, I, I get the hustle. I understand. I had a roommate once who actually would make those, would make seaweed, like, in the oven. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, it's definitely doable. I, I didn't really study the technique, you know? I didn't really learn... <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I didn't learn how to do that. It was just that he would do it, so... 
no, 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 I can't do it now. Okay. I would just eat it all the time. Fair enough. It's too late. <laughs> this is a night episode we're recording, so it's, uh, it, well, it's actually, no, I mean, I'd say it's midnight snack time, is it not? Now is just the perfect time for a little nibble. Just go out there and get yourself a little treat. <laughs> a little seaweed treat. Okay. Any, um, any seaweed statue predictions for the second half? You think one will show up? Some kind of Poseidon um, I- figure. Do you think that Kitterly's going to straight up try to kill him? Like chase him, chase him around I, with like potentially, a knife? Potentially. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me if some kind of, because he already tried to hide once horribly and kind of, you know, fake hid. But the fact that he is the knowledgeable expert and everyone else seems to die or is confused or doesn't want to stay for long, is terrified. I wouldn't be shocked if there was a moment like that where he has to kind of use his expertise to get around or something, evade. But I don't know. I, I don't, I'm kind of loath to make predictions with a mystery book like this just because I've actually enjoyed this one um, as it's unraveling. So I don't, yeah, I'm curious. I, I don't really have any strong feelings. Any predictions for you I you want to make? I, I think that when they go to do the temple, because of the pagan kind of like ideas that are going along with that, I, I get the feeling that uh, Kitterly's going to try to sacrifice Oh, Pansy. yeah. I could see it. He's more of a pure vessel of the house, too. He really, you know, mm-hmm. he's like communed with it. He's one with it. Lived yeah. there for many years. So, yeah, that, I, I could see that reading for sure. Yeah, lots to uncover. I think, I don't know, we never did this segment. We really don't in book clubs anyway, but I think we've both really enjoyed it so far. I won't speak for you, yeah. but we. it's funny, yeah. too. I noticed I was looking at the timer as we've been recording, of course, and I do. we always go shorter on the books we like, which I just love. It's <laughs> hilarious. Because, yeah, it's, I mean, we have obviously lots to say, and we hopefully unpacked a lot of the key ideas we've been thinking about, but I, it's just we always go long on the things we don't like. It's just how rambling and, you know, complaining gets, I guess, critiques. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I've just really loved this book. I, as I told you, I read it in one – it wasn't a sitting, but one day and because it just absolutely hooked yeah. me, no question. And I was just so in that, um, yeah, it's checking mm-hmm. all, all my boxes. And, hey, if nothing else, it's the rarest fantasy of all, Amanda, that we have to savor, which is that it's under 300 pages and is not in a series. So this is the true yeah. blessed fantasy. <laughs> you don't – So – Yeah. <laughs> so good it's, it's it's so good on for so many different reasons <laughs> yeah yeah you just don't get yeah you just don't get many fantasies like this so to speak mm-hmm. you know it's anyway gotta save them when they come along all right so we're both loving it and we hope you look forward to part two of our book clubs we hope also that you've enjoyed listening to us and have loved it yourself if you've been reading and hopefully you have it's well worth it i think that that much is clear <laughs> from what we've been chatting about uh, as always, as I mentioned, thanks for listening through to the end. We have social media accounts at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, and that's on Instagram and Facebook. So give us a follow there if you're inclined. We, again, keep up with the reading schedule there and post updates and the books we're doing and covering. So check us out. Any podcast platform you're on, if you could leave a rating and review, five stars, etc., it helps a ton. It's how those systems and algorithms work. So the more ratings and recommendations, the better. We appreciate that as always. Um, next time i guess should we mention it but we'll be doing the rest of it in book club part two so i don't even know how many parts there are six there are i will look it up for you sure i, th- I think six <laughs> i'm not certain. there are seven seven okay so some shorter ones and yeah next time next time we chat next time you're in the feed check out part two we'll be spoiling and analyzing the entirety of the book thanks as ever listeners for sticking with us we appreciate you hope you enjoyed the discussion and until next time we'll see you between the pages